Thank you, Dan, and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful, wondrous worship this morning. Turn your Bibles again to the Mark and Gospel, Mark chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 39. Today, we begin a new sermon series entitled, Who Is He? We're going to journey through the Gospel of Mark all the way to Easter Sunday on April the 16th. So we're beginning today. This series will conclude at the end of Mark with the resurrection on April the 16th. So I hope you'll bring your journeying shoes, your hiking shoes, and pack your snacks, and I hope you won't miss a Sunday. And if you do have to be away on a Sunday, I hope you go on the web and watch and catch up. Would you dedicate yourself from now until Easter Sunday to studying the Mark and Gospel? to understanding who Jesus is in each of these sermons in the series. We want you here, but for some reason you have to travel. You watch the web, you catch up, stay with us, so you'll be ready to go as the sermons will build one sermon upon the next. The question overarching the Mark and Gospel is this, who is he? As we take the bins and as we go through the, the jungle of Mark and as we approach various characters, the question on the lips of everyone is, who is this rabbi by the name of Jesus? And actually, we learn a whole lot today in our very first sermon in Mark. For such a complex character, the answer seems so simplistic. How did Jesus engage his time? How did he spend his time in earthly ministry for those approximately three years? Well, he did three things during those three years. He taught, he cast out demons, and he healed the sick. He taught, he cast out demons, and he healed the sick. In fact, most, if not all of Jesus's ministry can be captured with the verbals, teaching, exorcising, and healing. Teaching, exorcising, and healing. Now, Mark is a gospel of action. If you, it's going to be breathless on this journey. Jesus and Mark is always on the move in the midst of ministry, even at the very beginning. Now, you might have assumed that Matthew was the first gospel pen because it's first in order of the New Testament. It's what we call canonical order, the order of the New Testament, but probably not. Most scholars agree, almost a, a unanimous voice, that this gospel by Mark, John Mark, is probably the first piece of good news to come from a pen. Mark's gospel more brief, but probably first. Now, actually, the gospel is anonymous. We're never told in the text itself that it is written by John Mark. We refer to it as Mark. And even though technically I would have to tell you it is anonymous, there is a reliable and ancient tradition going all the way back to Papias, P-A-P-I-A-S, going all the way back to Papias, a second century, second century church father that says, John Mark's the writer. Now, who is John Mark? 
You know John Mark as a traveling companion with Paul and Barnabas, and you, you know that, and then with Barnabas alone. And then later you know he is helpful to Peter, the apostle Peter. We learn about John Mark in the Acts of the Apostles, and we learn about John Mark in the letters of the New Testament. And, well, what we're told is this, by tradition and by New Testament, at the heart of Mark's gospel is the preaching of Peter. That's who he was with in the end. And so what we hear written by John Mark comes from no less an authority than the Apostle Peter's preaching. John Mark codified the preaching of the Apostle Peter in this gospel. Now, you won't be surprised. Since this, it's the gospel with jogging shoes, he doesn't have time to tell you about a Bethlehem baby. There is no birth narrative here. He wants to get to the action. He wants Jesus to begin teaching and casting out demons and, and healing. And so immediately he begins with the ministry of the Messiah. In fact, in verses 9 through 13, you have a brief statement about baptism. Mark's always short. And then a brief statement about the testing in the wilderness, the temptation of Jesus. And then look at verse 15 of chapter 1. When we get to verse 1 of chapter 15... We come to the heart of the message of Jesus. Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Right here in the beginning, in the first chapter, he has Jesus stand up and preach the essential of the gospel. Time is here. Time is now. I am here, so the kingdom of God is here, and so you better repent and believe. It demands a response. Now, some of the gospel writers, like Matthew and John, have Jesus with much longer conversations. I think especially about John where we have chapter 3 and we talk to Nicodemus for an entire chapter, or we move over next to the woman at the well. But not so in Mark. In Mark, Jesus stands up and in short sentences, he proclaims the gospel in all fullness and in all power. Note the words from the lips of our Lord and Mark are few. Because here, Jesus is a man of action. Mark wants you to know. He wants you to know about the power of Jesus. He wants them to know about the power of Jesus then and no less we need to know about the power of Jesus now. Powerful then and now. He probably brings this gospel to a Roman audience that feels powerless. They're being persecuted. They are suffering at the hands of Rome. In fact, it is in this gospel in, in chapter 13 that Jesus tells them, you will be handed over to councils. You will be in the synagogue beaten. You will face kings because of your faith in me. He had warned them that they were going to feel powerless. In fact, Tacitus, a secular historian, tells us that Nero, Roman Emperor Nero, quote, punished with utmost cruelty a class loathed for their abominations whom the crowd called Christians. 
He had them dismembered publicly by the dogs for entertainment. He had them nailed to crosses, literally set them alive on fire to illuminate his gardens. So to this Roman crowd that's feeling suffering and persecuted and powerless, he reminds them that there is no power greater than the power of Jesus. So it's fast-paced, it's action-packed. Mark is longing to tell you about the power of Jesus over all things. Now, those of you 40 and above, have you ever tried to convince your children to watch one of the good old movies from the good old days? A movie that you enjoyed so much and you were just sitting there so excited that they're going to see what a real movie is like. Have you ever done that? You just know their socks are going to be knocked off when they see what a real movie is like versus what we put out today. After a lot of coercion, a few years ago, I finally convinced my teenage daughters to sit down and watch a real movie entitled Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> Morgan Freeman played by Morgan Freeman plays Hoke Colburn, a chauffeur Miss for Miss Daisy, a southern lady played by Jessica Tandy. Now, I'm not the only one who liked this movie. It won four Academy Awards in 1990, including Best Picture. Well, I got them all around the TV. We popped in the disc. And you don't realize these relational movies, I still say they're the best, how slow they seem to modern minds who want a murder to occur every single minute. And I've got an old man driving around an old woman in a car and talking. They are used to this Rambo rapid speed with immediate action and multiple plot twists. And the only thing I had going was an old man and an old woman from two different sides of the planet forming a friendship. Now, they made fun of it for about half the movie, but in the end, they had to admit it was good. It was really good. Well, John is like driving Miss Daisy. Mark is like Rambo in comparison. <laughs> like yesterday's slow motion pictures, John develops Jesus as he sits down and has these long conversations driving people to and fro, but not so in Mark. And Mark, the Messiah, is always on the move. So this is a gospel for the younger crowd. Jesus enters Capernaum and immediately begins to exercise his spiritual authority by teaching about the kingdom, by casting out demons, and by healing those who are sick. Now, what would you think would be an important word in a gospel of action? You know what Mark's favorite adverb is? It's immediately, immediately, sometimes translated at once. Look at, look at 118. In 118, you, you see the word, and then immediately. Or, or look at verse 20. How's that verse begin? And immediately. Or, or verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and when did it happen? If it's Mark, it always happens right now. Immediately. Verse 21, change it just a little bit. And just then. That's another way of saying immediately. And 
just then. Look at verse 23. Uh, just then. And then look again at, at verse 28. In verse 28, and immediately, or verse 29, how does it begin? And immediately, or verse 30, immediately they spoke to him about her. Verse 42, verse 43, immediately, immediately. It's Rambo action speed. And Mark is happening, and it's happening right now. First thing I want you to see about the power of Jesus from this first gospel is this. Jesus has authority in his teaching. Jesus has authority in his teaching. Look at chapter 1 and look at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. What is the, the first verb? What is the first action of Jesus and Mark? It is teaching. And they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus' authority in teaching. Now, he doesn't have the long conversations in Mark, but he does teach. In fact, he uses the, the word teaching five times in Mark. He uses the word teacher for Jesus 12 times in Mark. And he says, to teach 15 times in Mark. So if you add up those numbers, 5, 12, and 15, Jesus is in Mark, first and foremost, a teacher. And he taught like no one had ever taught before. And what did he teach them? Whether it's chapter 1, chapter 4, Chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 12, chapter 14, he teaches the same thing. Back to 115. This is the teaching of Jesus. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Thus, repent and believe the gospel. The first thing Mark wants you to see is the power or the authority of Jesus as a teacher, and his teaching concerns the arrival of the kingdom of God. And once you know that the long-awaited kingdom of God has arrived, there's only one appropriate response. You repent and you believe. When the holy inhabits the earth, when the Messiah has arrived, when he's standing before you with authority over demons and diseases, you realize you're a sinner, you repent, and you believe in him as the only son of God. The teaching for Jesus has a name. It is the aim, like John the Baptist, of repentance, and even further, the aim of belief. God's reign and rule. That's what it means for the kingdom of God to arrive. It means the reign and the rule of God is now here. It has begun with the birth of the Bethlehem baby. And now that Jesus is here, well, we need to repent and to believe. Now, they're absolutely overwhelmed with this teaching. Look what they ask. They ask the question in 127. They were amazed and debated, saying, 
what is this? A new teaching with authority. What is this? He teaches with authority. Now, I've already quoted Papias and Tacitus here in the sermon. And that's the way the Pharisees did when they preached or taught. They quoted this authority and then that authority and then this authority and then that authority. But Jesus didn't preach that way. He was the authority. He didn't have to tell you what anybody else had to say. For only what he had to say mattered. You see? They'd never heard anyone teach like that. He didn't quote anybody else. He didn't need to. Unless he quoted the word of God, which he sometimes did. A word he knew so well, which of course was also what? His word. You see? He didn't have to tell you what anybody else thought or any other poet or any other historian. Paul did that sometimes, but Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus just stood up and made the proclamation, I'm here, the kingdom is here, you repent and you believe. And they were astonished. They said, what kind of teaching is this? This breaks all the molds. We've never heard anyone like this before. This is a new style. This isn't the diatribe of old. What is this? In fact, in, in Job, we read, God is exalted in power. Who is a teacher like God? No one. Before we ask the question in Mark, who is this? And we're going to ask that question several times. Before we ask, who is this? We ask, what is this? What is this that he teaches with so much authority? Here's the second thing. Not only authority or power in teaching, but authority and power in exercising. E-X-O-R, in casting out the demons. Not only is he authoritative with his teaching, he is authoritative with his casting out of the demons. Now, I've noticed something as I read through Mark. There are four elements to the casting out of demons. So this would be A, B, C, and D under your number two Casting out a demon. Here's what happens when Jesus meets a demon. First of all, he encounters the unclean spirit. Like, look at, look at 123. And just then, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. So, first of all, Jesus kind of collides with the unclean spirit. Secondly, the demonic forces make their defense saying, hey, leave us alone. Leave us alone. Look at verse 24. And he cried out saying, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, sometimes in this second part, when they implore Jesus to leave them alone, they also reveal his identity. In this second part, first we encounter, and then the demons make their defense and often in their defense, they say, hey, we know who you are. You've not fooled us. You're the Holy One of God. Third part of this demon encounter goes something like this. Jesus commands the unholy presence to depart. Jesus commands the unholy presence to depart. And sometimes as part of this, he tells them to be quiet. He casts them out, and sometimes, as in this case, he tells them uh, to be silent. Look at verse 25. 
And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. There's, there's part three. And finally, the fourth part of exorcising the demons is the bystanders are amazed at his authority over the demons. The bystanders are amazed at his authority over the demons. Look at verse 127. And they were amazed, so they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? And you teach with authority. He even commands the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Have you ever noticed the one character in the New Testament that never misses the mark when it comes to the identity of Jesus is demons? Everybody else misses it. Why, even Jesus' family, John 7, doesn't understand who he is until after his resurrection. So the family of Jesus doesn't understand his identity. The apostles don't understand his identity. For a moment they do, and then they don't, and they kind of do, and then they don't. And, well, the disciples are in and out, and sometimes they get it, and sometimes they don't get it. So the apostles don't always get it right. And would you believe even John the Baptist, uh, the cousin of Jesus, doesn't understand the character of his cousin Jesus? Uh, well, he, he calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth on one great moment of insight. And then when he finds himself in Herod's dungeon, he sends the word, are you really the one or should I look for someone else? You see that? So whether you're talking about the family of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, or even the forerunner himself, John the baptizer, they sometimes know and sometimes they're cloudy, but the demons always get it right. And long before Peter will tell us in Mark 8, you are the Christ to Jesus, all the way back here in chapter 1, the demons have let the cat out of the bag. You are the Holy One. Of Israel. Now, why does Jesus muzzle the Spirit and not allow them to declare Messiahship? You, you might say, well, the demons got it right. Why does he tell them to be quiet? Why doesn't he let them just proclaim that he is the Holy One of Israel? Well, the reason is this. They rightly call him Messiah. But Jesus mutes this message of Messiahship because the Jewish community of the first century didn't rightly understand what it meant to be the Messiah. They had misconceived the Messiah as a redeemer to release them from Roman oppression. They had missed the message of the Old Testament that the Messiah was to be a spiritual redeemer. And so if the demons had let the word out that he was the Messiah, he would have been understood as a military character early on before he could redefine Messiah along the lines of Isaiah's suffering servant who, like a lamb that is silent before his shears, is willing to suffer for the sake of of the people. They had missed the emphasis of the spiritual redemption, and they would have thought of him as an insurrectionist about to head for and to attack Rome. The Jews didn't really understand the Messiah as being a divine being, and so Jesus spends his ministry trying to remake the image of Messiah so that when he's hanging on a cross, they understand this is something a Messiah would do because to them a Messiah would sit on a throne and never hang on a cross. 
Theologians call this the Markan secret or the messianic secret in Mark that Jesus says, shh, shh, don't tell anybody yet. Third authority, authority in healing, verses 29 through 34. Well, what happens next? We teach, we cast out the demon, and then verse 29, how fast does it happen? You guessed it, and immediately. After they had come out of the synagogue, they came to the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to him about her. And, it came to her, and he came to her and raised her by taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. And when the evening had come, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door, and he healed as many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak, there it is again, because they knew who he was. There you go. Now talk about being in the right place at the right time. May the 23rd, just last year, uh, less than a year ago, 2016, Patty Rice at a retirement community in Cincinnati was choking on a hamburger that she was served in the retirement home. Patty Rice, 2016, May 23rd. The old man beside her was 96 years of age. He didn't call for the nurse or the help. He went over there, put his fist right where it needed to be, and perfectly executed the Heimlich maneuver and saved his fellow retirement home uh, citizen seated right beside him. Now, how would a 96-year-old man in a retirement home know how to give the Heimlich maneuver with such precision? Because his name was Henry Heimlich. He was the inventor of the Heimlich maneuver. He happened to be seated. It wasn't theory for him anymore. He and, and was it happenstance? She didn't think so. She wrote him a letter and said, By the grace of God, I was seated next to you. Henry Heimlich. Dr. Henry Heimlich performed the Heimlich maneuver I don't know, maybe for the actual first time in 96 years of age and saved Patty Reese's life. Like Patty Reese, Peter's mother-in-law was in the right place, Capernaum, at the right time when she was sick because Jesus was there. Now, Capernaum, you can put a little star beside that. That is the premier city on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, it becomes the headquarters for the ministry of Jesus, so much so that in Matthew, Capernaum is called his own city. Now, Peter and Andrew were first from Bethsaida, but they apparently moved to Capernaum. And you know who else is from Capernaum? Matthew had a tax collecting business in Capernaum. Other scholars say even James and John were for Capernaum. And so Capernaum is our city of action. In fact, next week, we'll let a man down through the roof on a pallet. Where? In Capernaum. So Capernaum is an important place, and they're there at the, ha the house of the mother-in-law of Simon Peter. And well, Mark begins this story with his favorite word immediately. But just like the demon exorcism has a predictable pattern, the healings have a predictable pattern, and they are three. Here we go, A, B, and C under point three. First of all, the predicament is set forth. Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. 
predicament is set for. And here we kind of receive a description of the illness. And sometimes in that first part, there's a request, will you heal me? Will you heal me? And secondly, we have the healing itself. In 31a there, he, he came to her and raised her by taking her up by the hand, and the fever left her. So the second thing is the actual healing. And thirdly, verse 31, the healing authenticates the identity and the authority of Jesus. Verse 31, and it authenticates who Jesus is. Three steps in the healings in this chapter. Now, in, in Mark's gospel, the healing often happens with touch. The idea being that the power leaves the one who's healing, Jesus, and goes into the one who's being touched. So what does he do here? He takes her by the hand and raises her up. Now, our physicians need to know in antiquity, fever was not seen as a symptom. Fever was seen as a disease. And so this disease is called fever. It, obviously, there's something else wrong. The, the fever is a symptom. They didn't know that. Mark doesn't describe it that way. But Jesus takes her by the hand. Other places in Mark's gospel that Jesus lays hands on people. And other places in Mark's gospel, someone reaches out and touches the hem of the garment. You see, touching and healing go together in Mark. And so it is here. And all this teaching and all this casting out of demons and all this healing, Jesus becomes popular. They bring everyone who's Ill, Ill to him. And notice Verse 35, and early in the morning while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. Three times in Mark's gospel, in the midst of the teaching and the healing and the casting out of the demons, Jesus sneaks away and he goes to pray. Happens while it's still dark and he's praying. Now, Simon shows up. Simon would have been a great manager, wouldn't he? He shows up. This show is on the road. It's going good. We need a repeat performance of what you did yesterday. We'll bring you some more sick people, and we'll find some demons for you to cast out. Simon is ready to go. And Jesus says, verse 38, hold on, Simon. We got to go to other towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came. And he went into their synagogues throughout Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. Simon's ready to take the show on the road. Jesus says, I got to go everywhere and preach. Isn't that the mission of the church? To preach the gospel everywhere? It comforts me to know that before it was our mission, it was Christ's mission. You see that? We, we, we have the role of Christ in this broken world. We are to carry, he left us with that command. He didn't leave it with anybody else but the church. We are to go to teach and to baptize. Well, it didn't matter, did it? Whether it was a disease or a demon or the crowd of people, they all submitted to the authority of Jesus. And as I read through this, I know how the demons responded and how the de diseases responded. But the real question today is, as the kingdom of God is in your midst, how will you, how will you respond? Let us pray.
Father, we're out of breath already going through Mark. Could there be a, a greater pronouncement? The long-awaited reign and rule of God has arrived, and we must repent and believe. And just as much as those early believers needed the power of Jesus, today we need his power as we, the church, continue his work of telling the good news that especially in the crucifixion and resurrection of the Holy One of Israel, God has arrived. Maybe there are some here this morning in this room or others watching by way of television. This would be his day or her day to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus, to answer that question, who is Jesus? Maybe there are others who need to join this church and carry on the cause of Christ telling the good news that today would be his day or her day or their day to come and call First Baptist home. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.